With great power comes great responsibility. Compromise where you can. Where you can't, don't. Even if everyone is telling you that something wrong is something right, even if the whole world is telling you to move, it is your duty to plant yourself like a tree, look them in the eye and say no, you move. Never step onto the battlefield of ideas unprepared. Before you enter the fray, you need a plan. And there's no better place to get one than right here on Tactics with host Caleb Colquitt. The Situation Room goes live now on News Radio 1440. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. As always, I'm your host, Caleb Colquitt. Welcome to the program. We have a lot to get to tonight, but you may have noticed that I haven't been putting out a ton of content recently. And I do apologize for that, and you may be a little bit baffled as to where I've been for the past month, but I actually do have kind of a bittersweet announcement to make. This is going to be my last series of episodes. And so for those of you that are scratching your head and wondering where this is coming from, the thing is I actually got a new job. I'm the new head coach of the esports team here at Faulkner University. This is the first time we've ever had this program. We're starting it up from the ground up, and they put me in charge of seeing this program through and, and making it into a viable athletics club here at Faulkner University, which I'm very ecstatic about. I am super pumped to be able to start my new job, but that does mean, unfortunately, that some of my other jobs and duties and other parts of my life wound up having to take a backseat. And because of that, I'm doing this. And I also have another part-time job at, at Faulkner that I'm doing to help keep things up on campus with the housing department over in Davis Hall. And so I've got a lot of irons in the fire. And then another big one is that I'm actually, as a lot of you already knew, pursuing a master's degree in biblical studies. And so with two jobs and a master's degree, as much as I love doing the show, and even though it did help a lot when I rolled it back to just doing one show a week, Frankly, I just don't have time to even do that, and I hate that, and part of it is also because the, the tactic studio that you see right now, it's actually in my apartment at Faulkner, and I had to change apartments to change jobs, so the, the studio's coming down, and so because of that, I won't be able to do any more episodes very shortly. So the first thing I want to do is just to say thank you. I really appreciate everything that you guys have, have done for me, all of the kind comments, all of the support that's been thrown my way. I mean, after this point, even being shadow banned and having community strikes against me on YouTube, you guys stuck with me through all of it. And more importantly, I'm talking about expanding it past back when we just did video podcast. I mean, going all the way back. And going back to the original podcast that I did, the Not Ashamed Show, which of course was the namesake of my company, Not Ashamed Media, which turned into The Patriot Preacher, which turned into Tactics on the radio, and then eventually evolved into this video podcast. For those of you that have been with me every step of the way, for those of you that have even helped with the show and made guest appearances, people like Matt and Laura Clark and, and Chris James and uh, Andrew and, and AJ and uh, some of the other guys that showed up on the Geek End on our, our entertainment channel, uh, Jacob Bear, who was one of my original co-hosts. I mean, all the people that have helped me through this. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. Thank you to, I mean, I know I'm going to be leaving people out, but pe people that were friends of the show that came on frequently, like 
Becky Garrettson, um, Shanna Chambly, um, Brian Petters, who was another one. Uh, I remember Simpler Days was a big part of the show at one point. And just to all of you that were here with me through all this, Jody McDade, and uh, I would be really, I think, doing a disservice if I didn't give a really big thank you to my dad, who helped me out a lot with this, made several appearances on the show and encouraged me through all of that. And, and also Mark Montiel, who was kind of my mentor in this and really helped me get started on the show. And even Bob Woody and Joe Hunk, who were instrumental helping behind the scenes to help make the show what it was. So thank you to everybody. I really appreciate it. And, and I cannot say how much I really love having you guys as a part of this show, but also as a part of my life as well. And especially to the fans that, that watched this and supported it, uh, my subscribers on YouTube, my subscribers on Rumble, which actually has grown surprisingly quickly, which is part of the reason I hate that I'm having to leave the microphone behind now because this is when my, my channel was starting to really take off on Rumble. Uh, but for all of you that, that watched on there or Facebook, just thank you for being with me through all this. And, and thank you especially to the audience members and the guest hosts that helped me when I had cancer. I remember when I was going through chemo, there would be weeks at a time where I couldn't take to the airwaves. And there were plenty of people that were willing to pitch in and help me out and support me and, and pray for me in recovering through all that. And I just wanted to say thank you and, and how much I appreciate and love all of you. So with all that being said, you may be sitting there as an audience member and asking, well, I guess this is it. This is the last rodeo. And, and yes, that is true in a lot of ways. There will be no more weekly show. There will be no more weekly episodes. However, one of the perks of being the esports head coach is that they're building another studio specifically for esports, not for this, up in my new office. And so because of that, and because Faulkner is going to be doing that and I'll have access to that technology and broadcasting stuff as well, I am going to be reviving my weekly entertainment show, The Geek End, and there will even be people that are associated with the university that make some appearances on that show because it's going to be a little bit more geared towards video games and esports uh, from here on out. I know we've done movies and other things like that in the past, but it'll be a little bit more focused on video games since that's my job now. So there is going to be The Geek End, and that'll probably be a couple months away because we still have to get the studio built, but... Uh, that is going to be something that I intend to, to use to make a comeback. And I'm still going to keep the channel active to some degree. You'll still occasionally see me jump on and opine about different things. I'm, I'm probably not going to be doing the big, elaborate, long, heavily researched segments that I used to. But yeah, I'll jump on here and maybe do a Daily Dose of Stupid or a Chaplain's Report every now and then. I think that that's something that I can do but just to stay in contact with you. And all my social media pages are going to continue to remain active. So you may have even noticed that here in the past couple of weeks, I have done very little actual video content, but I've really ramped up my meme game. So <laughs> that is something that you're going to continue to see, continue to follow the show on Twitter and, and Parler and Rumble and YouTube and Facebook and all of those different platforms. We're still gonna be there. We're just going to be in a different capacity and, and it's not going to be as often or as frequent as it was at one time. So is tactics going away completely uh, in the format that it is now? Yes, but there's still going to be content every now and then. And I'm sure that as I do guest appearances, preaching and doing Bible classes, you may recall that I have a lot of those also on the channel and those will be updated from time to time as well. So I am going to be doing those at least, you know, occasionally. 
and probably it'll it'll be a little bit more in the summer when my job dies down a little bit but you know we'll see where that goes but just don't expect having a weekly episode to come out like clockwork every week like we had in the past and i i hate to do that i hate to leave it but you know there are only so many hours in the day and i can only do so much but thank you for supporting me through all of this um i decided to do something a little bit different for my final episode because you may be tuning in and wondering what what news stories why now well i'm actually not going to be doing any news stories and I know that that seems very bizarre for a news podcast, but here's the reason, and I'm going to uh, expound upon that. I've always seen tactics as the armory of the rhetorical battlefield. And I said this, I think on the very first show that we changed the name to tactics, and the reason that this was the name of the show is because when it comes to arguments and, and meeting each other on the battlefield of ideas and hashing out our political disagreements to see whose idea really is right. I have never been of the opinion that a radio show or a video podcast or any of that changes hearts and minds. I'm not saying that it never does, but that's very, very rare. It's very rare that somebody who leans left all of a sudden starts watching me or Shapiro or Beck or one of the other big names and over time is convinced to become a conservative. Happens, but not real common. And the reverse is also true. If you're somebody that is, is hardcore right, you typically don't listen to Dean Obidala or you know Chris Cuomo, or even though he's gone now, which uh, is hysterical, uh, Don Lemon or any of those guys. You, you don't typically tune into them and then all of a sudden become a leftist. That just doesn't happen very often. And so the point of this show has always been, and I hope in the future will continue to always be, not something that is geared towards convincing other people, because I know that people just don't seek that kind of opposition content out. It's just being realistic. I've always thought of the show as being useful because it's a place where conservatives come together and I arm you with what you need to go out there and fight the battlefield of ideas. Because if some talking head on the internet tells you something, maybe you listen, maybe you don't, but you're probably not going to seek that out if it's somebody that disagrees with you. And even if you do, you're not very likely to heed what they say. But if your next door neighbor or a guy that goes to church with you or your cousin or something like that happens where there's an exchange and you figure out how to have these political discussions and debates in a, a civil and organized manner, but also being armed with the facts and being armed with the techniques you need to win that fight, that does change hearts and minds. And so that's always been the goal of the show from the very beginning. Whenever we first changed the name of the show to Tactics, that was always what I wanted to do for you. And so with that in mind, I sat back and thought about what should I be doing for my final episode. Well, I want to arm you one last time, but this time I'm going to do something that lasts, something that you could go and, and watch on the internet probably five, 10 years from now, and would still be very relevant to the arguments that you're having. Because if I'm going to be going out like this, I'm, I'm like King Theoden in Lord of the Rings. I'm like, if this is to be our end, I would have it be such an end to be worthy of remembrance. That's what I'm going to be doing here. And so since this is the last series of episodes, and I do have three planned, hopefully I'll be able to get them all out, I'm going to go over the biggest lies that the left tells people. And I want to show you systematically how to break these down. 
And this is not something that's going to be a one and done. This is not going to be, for example, dealing with a specific issue that happens of the day. That That's, what, that's the show that I normally do, and I love doing that. But these three episodes are going to be worldview kind of shows. It's not going to be dealing with any one news story. We might reference some news stories here and there that have happened in the past. But I'm not bringing you any news. What I'm doing here is discussing the lies that the left tells and how to dismantle them directly in front of somebody so that they can be convinced that this way of thinking is erroneous. So that's really what I'm going to be doing. And a lot of this is based around the premise that you've heard me say probably a thousand times if you've been listening to the show for any length of time. The left and leftism has morphed from being a different political party. You know, at, at one point, Democrats were just Republicans that thought that there should be a big welfare state and maybe we should go a little softer on crime. Now, I think that they were wrong and misguided on those things. However, that's not somebody that has a completely different worldview and exists in a different reality than somebody on the right. And while I don't think that the average run-of-the-mill rank-and-file Democrat is all bought into socialism and leftism and wokeness and, and all of that garbage, there are enough of them that they've become a problem, and they're really the ones in the driver's seat of the DNC at this point. It's where all the big money is. It's where a lot of the leadership is heading. I mean, look at it right now. Joe Biden, who's supposed to be a moderate Democrat, even though even back in his heyday, you know, back in the 80s when he was in the Senate, he really was never a moderate. Never, he, he was regarded as one of the further left of the people in the Senate, even amongst the Democrats. However, he ran as a moderate, but his governing is leftist. And that really is proof that the progressives and the hardcore socialists, they're actually the ones running the party now. And so because of that, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go over all of the lies of the left and I'm going to treat it as though it is a rival religion. Because that's really what it has morphed into. It's no longer a political party. It's no longer people that just have some different political proclivities than Republicans. But at the end of the day, we have the same goal and we're trying to head the same place. Now, that's been gone for a while now. Really for the past 20 years. And so because of that, I'm going to give you these big lies that the left tells and show you how to break those down so you're not just defeating an argument that deals with a topic of the day. You can break down and apply this to many different arguments. Then you can apply this information to people way down the line because it will show you how to look at these arguments and break them down at their most basic level. And I'll talk to about how some of these issues bleed into each other, but regardless, this is the way I'm going to systematically do it. So I'm going to give you the lie, and then for each of these lies, I'm going to take three steps to break them down. First, I'm going to explain the theology and the roots. Because if you don't understand the theology of the uh, religious premise, this lie that I'm going to be going over, if you don't understand their argument, you can't win it. You can't break down an argument if you don't understand the argument yourself. You have to understand your enemy to be able to defeat your enemy. That's the way that this works. Step two is going to be, I'm going to give a biblical rebuttal. So what we're going to do is we're going to open up divine revelation, look in God's word, and show you how to break this down. Now, this may seem a exercise in futility because you might be looking at this and saying, well, that doesn't make any sense because if people you know, are a rabid secularist and this thing is morphed into a rival religion, why would I need the biblical argument? They're not going to listen to that. Well, for two reasons. First of all, you may have some people that aren't true believers that are kind of rank-and-file Democrats that have bought into something of leftism 
but they don't really understand where that idea comes from. And they still actually care about divine revelation and care about the Bible. And when you show them where in the Bible that this occurs, they can understand why this is erroneous thinking. And the other thing that it serves too is that you can't just, this is a mistake a lot of evangelists make actually. You can't constantly just dance around the issue. I understand that there's a time and a place, and I think that you'll see that I'm pretty good at doing this. I've, I've been doing this for several years now, six years, that I can actually make the case without going to a religious text at all. I can just use secular rationale and logic and philosophy to break down these bad arguments. However, at a certain point, you're going to have to confront the person with the actual scripture. You're going to have to confront the person with the opposing worldview. Because there's some things, especially on the fundamental level, that you can break it down from a philosophical standpoint, but at a certain point, you have to assert your own beliefs. And that's where that biblical rebuttal is going to come in. And the third part is I'm going to give you the constitutional rebuttal. So this will be what I was talking about a second ago, where it's more the, the philosophical. Uh, it's going to be something that is outside the realm of biblical ideas and thought. However, Part of the reason that I decided to do the constitutional rebuttal second when originally I was going to do that first and then give the biblical rebuttal is if I give the constitutional rebuttal second, you'll see how the founders actually used the scripture to make this argument originally. And so you can see the intellectual uh, family tree, as it were. You can see the genealogy of this idea and where the founders got it, because if you understand that foundation, you'll be much better equipped to make the argument in the political realm as well. So this is kind of going to be my last go-round, and I think what I'm going to do is break this into three episodes. We'll see where we go on time, but I'm probably just going to break this into three episodes, and then I'm going to release them as time goes on. And if they become very popular and I have some spare time in the future, I might even do some more lies. I don't know. Uh, if this format just seems to work for me, then yeah, I might come back later in the new studio and do that. But for right now, these three should be able to dismantle pretty much any argument the left makes if you understand how to dismantle it on the fundamental level. So uh, once you understand these, you'll have the tools to just get rid of those and, and to tear down their defenses. And you have to understand that part of the reason that I'm doing this more from a theological perspective is because, unfortunately, some of these lies have invaded mainstream Christianity. Now, they may not necessarily be political left, Although I would guarantee you if they have adopted these lies, that's the direction they're headed in and get out of that church or change the direction of that church. You got to pick one or the other because staying in there and staying quiet is not going to work if you're in one of these churches that has adopted one of these lies. However, uh, since these have infiltrated a lot of modern mainstream evangelical churches and some Catholic churches as well, then what you are going to have to do is to break these arguments down on the theological level as well. And so I think that you'll get a better idea once I tell you the first lie, which is man is good and can be perfected. There are a lot of people, even in modern Christendom, that if you ask them, are people basically good? They would say, yeah, they're basically good. This is a lie that has infected even Christianity. So remember, that's the first lie. Man is good and can be perfected. This is a lie. It is simply not true. But to understand where this comes from, it really does come from Satan himself. That is the origin of this lie. If you think about it, 
go all the way back to Genesis and when the devil was tempting Eve in the garden. Basically, that is the pitch that he is making. He is saying, go ahead and take this fruit. You will not surely die and you will be as wise as God. So he's saying, you know, ignore that thing that that God character told you. Because that's not going to work out so well for you. God's holding back on you. He's not letting you really live up to your full potential. So what I'm telling you is, why don't you be your own moral boss? Because you're good. You're a good person. And you can make those decisions. That's fine. And then when you partake of the fruit, you will be as wise as God. That is literally the first pitch that Satan made to mankind. That you're good. You're good enough to make this decision on your own. And you don't need God's permission. And then the second part of that is man can be perfected. When you partake of it, you will be as wise as God. You will know the difference in good and evil, and, and you will be perfected. You will be in the mode in which you really should be. And unfortunately, this lie has taken thousands of different forms. But really, just about all of the problems in the world could go back to this. People believing that they are good and that they are good enough to make their own moral decisions, which is the reason they don't really need God anymore. And this underlies most of the problems that the left has now. The reason that they adopt a bunch of stupid backwards policies is because of it, they believe that they're smarter than God and that their ways are higher than his ways, and they just simply are not. So if you understand that, and you also understand that just like any other lie, there is a kernel of truth to it. Because all of the best lies, and, and by those I mean the ones that are most convincing that the devil uses the most effectively, are the ones that are at least partially true. Because it is true that man does have some good in him. We have a spark of the divine. We are created in God's image. But the thing is, this lie takes the focus off of God and gets us to focus on what we have ourselves. Well, that takes away the only goodness we do have. Because the only, ironically, the only good thing in us is the fact that we're made in God's image. And so once we focus inwardly and say, you know what, we don't need God to be moral, well then we've thrown away literally the only part of us that actually is good. That's the irony in this lie. And so once you understand that basis, you understand where all this comes from. But the truth is, part of it also comes from Greek philosophy. Now, I'm a big fan of Greek philosophy. I think that Greek philosophy is fantastic. And the concept that I'm about to convey to you, I actually think is a really good thing. However, separated from God, you can see where this goes awry and becomes erroneous. It's the Greek concept of teleos. So what teleos means is when something is perfected. So when we're talking about perfecting the human being, then this is kind of that same thing. The only problem is that the Greeks did not have divine revelation to sort of keep this in check. And so the idea of teleos, which is the Greek philosophy that things have a nature and that that thing is most in its nature or it has completed its nature once it reaches fulfillment. So for example, the teleos of a seed would be a flower. So the if it's a rose seed, for example, the seed of the rose is planted then that seed bursts out and matures and becomes a rose bush. Once it becomes a rose bush and it is fulfilling its nature, its place in the world, then it has become perfected. In fact, this is actually the word that Jesus uses on the cross. You remember when he says, it is finished? What that actually means is it is perfected. It has been brought to fruition. It has come to its completion. 
And so the story of mankind, the, the way to undo our sin and redeem us, that was perfected at the cross. So this is not a bad idea. But if you believe that mankind can be perfected and then you rip God out of that worldview, well, then the only thing you're left with is, well, once man just does whatever he wants to and reaches full maturity, then he has become perfected. So you see how ripping God out of that worldview actually makes this an incredibly poisonous philosophy. I think it's actually a good thing when applied correctly. It's a very good thing. It's one that even the Bible espouses to a degree. And then this can take the form, if we look later into, into modernism and postmodernism, this is the idea that Frederick Nietzsche had, that he was going to create the Ubermensch or the Superman, that mankind was going to raise above itself. And so this is the problem that you run into. So some examples of this that the left uses and, and the things that grow out of this false ideology is systematic racism. For example, they will say that man is good, and, and really the truth is that the problem is not humankind, it's society, and it's all these systems. And once we get rid of the systems, or once we perfect the systems, then humankind will be perfect and, and be exactly what they were always intended to be, and will have no more problems. This is where utopianism actually comes from. And so this idea that, man, you know, humans are basically good and can be perfected. The only problem is there's a system that is creating something evil or wicked, or it's creating a glitch in the matrix, as it were. That's what they believe systematic racism is. You see, as they've said many times when talking about critical race theory and systematic racism, they don't even necessarily believe individual racism is a problem. The problem is the system. And while there are some racists out there, you don't have to be a racist to be the beneficiary of systematic racism. And so really you're a racist regardless because you're the byproduct of this corrupt system. That's how they think, because they don't think of people as individuals. To them, it's all just a big conglomerate. And so you also see the problem with this, uh, and they'll say that this is the reason we need to defund the police, because it's part of that system, and that system has been corrupted, so we need to get rid of the corrupt systems. Now, systems can, of course, become corrupted, and when that happens, I'm all for removing the corrupt parts, or maybe even destroying the institution altogether and starting over. Sometimes that is the correct course of action. However, they believe that the system is the problem. It's not. There may be a flawed system, but the system is flawed because of the people. That's the issue. And that's the thing that they cannot get over. That's how they wind up thinking things like terrorism are America's fault. So you may recall that a lot of people on the left that after 9-11 happened, granted it, it took a couple years for them to arrive at this conclusion or at the very least have the courage to be vocal about it, they started saying things like, really this was America's fault. And, and because America had a presence in the Middle East and, and because there have been times where we went to war, like in the Gulf War with the, the Middle East, those are really the reasons that 9-11 happened is because America didn't do what it was supposed to do. And because of that, we have this terrible act of terrorism that happens. They say the same thing now uh, with the war in Afghanistan and the terrorism that happens over in the Middle East with other countries, not just Afghanistan, or the terrorist attacks that happen here, like San Bernardino. They say, well, really, the only reason that that's happening is because of things like 
us occupying territory over there and being a presence in the Middle East and those kinds of things. Or they'll say that Israel was the start of all the problems in the Middle East, which is laughable on a number of levels because Israel's been there since the 1940s. The Middle East has been at constant war since the 7th century. So the idea that Israel is the problem, and if we just removed that, then everything would be fine, is just hysterical. But regardless, trying to stay on track here, they say that things like that are always the fault of the system, not the individual. Because, you know, really, if the Taliban, if they just had tons of money and the same standard of living as us, they wouldn't be terrorists. This is flawed thinking. That's why you have like the Obama administration just dropping billions of dollars on their doorstep and unmarked bills and euros so that they can spend it on whatever they want. Because in their head, they think that the people over there, they're really not bad people. They just need certain things. And if they climb up Maslow's hierarchy of needs and they have all of the basic amenities they need, it's not that they're really bad people at heart. They just they want all of those things. And once we give them all the things that they want, then they're going to leave us alone and they're not going to hurt or, or kill anybody. Now, this is not even stupid, but it all goes back to that same lie that they genuinely believe that mankind is good and can be perfected. And that's where utopianism comes from. See, the thing is, when it comes to utopianism, that's their version of heaven. And that's one of the reasons that I say that the left is a rival religion. Because they have a heaven and a hell. In their idea, if you just gave them all the power and surrendered all your freedoms to them so that we could correct all the systems and they just put the right people in exactly the right place and fixed all the corruption in the system so that from here on out, they could just do whatever they wanted to and put all the right systems in place and, and purge out all the corruption, then mankind would be perfected. And we would reach a communist utopia. That's at the heart of everything Marx wrote. He believed that once we went through all these economic reforms or whatever, we would eventually reach communism. And what communism is, is the stage after socialism, where the government really doesn't have to take anything from you because everybody just shares everything anyway. So everybody works without being obligated to, and everybody only takes the things that they need. And because of that, mankind just lives in a perpetual eternal state of bliss and never having any fighting or war or violence or any of those things because everybody has what they need. Now, again, we live in a universe that has limited resources, and so this is stupid, but this is really what they think that they're eventually going to get to if you just surrendered all your power and freedom to them so that they could do with it what they will. And that's the problem they run into. And that's also how they can do things like blame inanimate objects. Like, you know, the crime in Chicago, that's not really the criminal's fault. That's really the fault of the guns. There's too many guns there. And if we just pass all the gun control laws, even though there's more gun control laws in Chicago than anywhere else in the planet, uh, if we just had more gun control, well, not the planet, but certainly the United States. Um, if we just implemented exactly the right gun control laws and took the guns away from the bad people, that would solve all the gun suicides, that would solve all the gun homicides, and, and there would be no crimes after that because people wouldn't have access to the guns. This is really what they believe. And because they believe that, that really infects their way of thinking. That's how they can blame a gun for a murder. Because it's really not the person's fault. All people are good and can be perfected. It's really the gun's fault. If the gun wasn't there, if we had a policy in place that took his gun away from him, then he wouldn't have committed that shooting. 
And so this is really what their ideology boils down to. And there's older examples of this too. You know, it's not just the modern left. I mean, it's, it's not just seeing knife drop boxes in the UK because stabbings have gone up because they've gotten rid of the gun. Somehow, you know, I guess people are still violent, even without guns. It's a miracle that, that this is taking place. But there are older examples too. This is where Hitler's master race came from. Remember that the basis of Hitler's ideology is that Germans are the master race. They're the ones that are going to reach that utopian state. And if we, uh, if we enforce that on the rest of the world, they're going to reach the utopian state too, and the Aryan race is going to lead them to do that. What's the problem then? Well, we've been infected by people like the Jews or the gypsies or black people or other genetic inferiors. Margaret Sanger, Planned Parenthood, had the same kind of ideas. The Klan, same ideas. They all believed that we could reach that utopian state. Now, theirs was primarily based on racism, but there have been other attempts that are just as faulty that are based off the same idea that man is perfected and can rise up to, or man is basically good and can rise up to the level of perfection. The Great Society by LBJ, this was a part of that as, uh, as well. You know, we've spent over $20 trillion on the war on poverty and had 50 years. And the poverty level is pretty much the same. It's gone up and down a little bit in that 50 years, but it's really stayed in pretty much the same margin of error. And so we spent all that money and all that welfare and really have absolutely nothing to show for it. In fact, certain communities have been more impoverished, like the black community, than they were before the Great Society started. Uh, you have Mao Zedong's Great Leap Forward. That one wasn't necessarily racially motivated. I, I don't know that there was any racial aspect to that one or the USSR, the same thing, uh, when they went through their purges. Well, they felt that that was a sacrifice that they were willing to make when they tried to systematically reform the way that they grow food and farmland. And, you know, it wound up in a few million people starving. No big deal. Because they believe that because people are good, they'll just work without, you know, getting paid or having any motivation or there being any kind of incentive for them to grow out of their poverty or have something to leave behind for their family. They don't really need those incentives because people are good and they'll work and, and do what we ask them to. Doesn't work that way. Just simply does not work that way. You can't centrally plan that. You know, there's an old adage that communism would work perfectly in a world with perfect people. And by the way, I believe that to be true. If the world were populated with only perfect people, we could have communism and it would work out just fine. But the thing is, if we had perfect people, any system would work fine. We could have capitalism, that would work perfectly. We could have no system at all, anarchy, that would work perfectly. If the world were populated with only perfect people, that is the only way communism will ever work. And since every single person is flawed, it never will. And that really brings us to the biblical rebuttal. So we'll go ahead and turn in the Bible to Ephesians 2, verse 3. And Paul writes here, Among them, we too all previously lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the rest. Now, it's important to note here that Paul is talking to people that are Christians. They are saved, and that's the reason that he's discussing this in the past tense. 
But what he's saying there is every single person, even one now that has put on Christ and forsaken that old life, you by nature are a child of wrath. This is the nature that you had before you came to Christ. Now, we can have a better nature, but ultimately we're still flawed human beings. And this is the thing that he is pointing out. When he brings this verse up, he is explaining that you have desires of the flesh, desires of the mind, and every single one of you, even the ones that are reformed now, that's what you used to be. And the reason that he's bringing this up is because it's a warning, don't fall back into that nature. You see, Paul understood that being able to rise above that, that's an exception to the rule, and it's something that only comes through Christ. That's something that Paul really is trying to drive home to, but he's saying that there is a nature in us and a natural tendency of mankind to want what we want. And what we want is not very good. To chase after our desires and impulses like animals, because that's all animals really do, right? They don't have an ability to rise above their nature. They just do whatever nature tells them to do. Doesn't mean they can't learn or they don't have some level of intelligence. You know, you can train a dog or a pig or, or different animals like that. But ultimately, if you break that all down, it's just a system of stimuli and responses. And humans have a tendency to be exactly the same way. But because we have a spiritual nature, a portion of us that is divine, we have the ability to rise above that. This lie turns that on its head, as we just described, going all the way back to Genesis. It's saying that we are good, that our natures are inherently good, and it's only the system that is corrupt, and if we could remove the corrupt system, our natures would lead us to actual perfection. The opposite is true. If we follow our nature, we'll be exactly the way Paul just described us. If we find a way to not even necessarily get rid of our nature, but subjugate it to our wills and subjugate our wills to the will of our Father, that's how you actually reach perfection. You can only do so through God. You can't take those institutions away and expect to be better. All that's going to do is make it worse. Because then... Base nature is all you got left, and our base nature is not good. That's what Paul is saying here. So ultimately, he's saying that you can change with Christ, but that is an exception, and that needs to be noted as well. So let's go ahead and look at Paul speaking on this same topic in a little bit more detail in the book of Romans, chapter 3, verses 9 through 18, where he says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is no righteous person, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks out God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an opening uh, their throat is an open grave with their tongues they keep deceiving the venom of asps is under their lips their mouth is full of cursings and bitterness their feet are swift to shed blood destruction and misery are in their paths and they have not known the way of peace there is no fear of god before their eyes 
does that sound like you, like somebody that believes that man's nature is really good? When it's all said and done, yeah, our nature is, is really pretty good and it's not really something that we have to tame or restrict in any way. No, I don't think that's what Paul is saying. And I think that's pretty obvious to anybody that's willing to listen. He's saying that that is our nature. In fact, if you look back at the first part of that, he says, are we better than they? Not at all, because all are under sin. There is no righteous person. And so what he's saying there is, even people that have a spiritual lineage, that have, for example, what he was talking about right there with the Greeks, that have a lineage of monotheism that are the spiritual descendants of Abraham, we're not better. We all have that nature. We all have sin. Every person, I actually, I'm going to steal this from Steve Dace, and I want to give him credit because I thought it was such a good line. It, it really codifies this idea. Every single person's mind has a red light district. I mean, it's unfortunate, but it's the truth. And if left to our own devices, if we do not have God in some way to impart that divine spirit on us, the red light district is where we're going to live. I wish that were not the case. Believe me. But that is how mankind is. And Paul understood that better than anybody. Remember, he is a reformed murderer. This is a person that sought out to kill Christians and did it in God's name with a clear conscience. He understood this better than anybody, which is the reason that he wrote it. And I think the fact that you are a Christian reading this in the first century in Rome that knows that about Paul's past and may have even been one of the Christians that he persecuted, don't you think that hit home pretty hard with them? They're like, yeah, he's not wrong. That nature is still there. It doesn't go away. You can accept Christ. You can put him on and reform yourself and you are transformed into a new creature. But never forget that you can fall back into that. Never forget that you are not better than everybody else. That's a warning that Paul is putting forward to those people. Because these are people, and he's saying that once you fall back into that, these are people that will never know peace. They do not know God. They have fallen away. And because of that, their life is lived in a constant state of lawlessness, and there is no God before their eyes. Isn't that a pretty apt description of what a lot of leftist thinking leads to? This idea that you can create some kind of utopia here on Earth, and that mankind is basically good, and if we just let people live their best lives and, and be the people that they were born to be, and just, you know, you be you, you do you. That's the worst advice you can give somebody. It really is. And I say that because if I were just to be me, I would be a terrible person. I understand how corrupt that nature is, and Paul does too, from personal experience. Honestly, as much as I hate to say it, and as much as it depresses me to know that this is true, most of the worst atrocities mankind has ever committed came from this lie. Ultimately thinking that people are basically good and, and they can be perfected or they can be brought to it. Now, sometimes that took the form of just Let's trust people and give them unlimited trust. And if we just leave it to them, then they'll figure it out. Sometimes it comes in the opposite form. 
okay, well, because the systems are corrupt, I need to take over everything and amass my own power because I'm one of the enlightened despots that can bring forth order and make it to where everybody can live peaceful, happy lives. You see, that same lie takes two different forms, but it's basically the same thing. That if I were able to do this, and if I were able to create this society, or if I could just leave it to everybody else, either way, it comes from the lie believing that mankind is good and can reach perfection on this side of eternity. There is no Garden of Eden east of Eden. Now, mankind can ultimately be perfected through Christ, and you know he commands that in Matthew 5.48. But on a corporate level, as a society, there is no way for mankind to be perfected as a group. Every time it talks about being perfected in Christ, that's an exception. The two verses that we just looked at where he's talking about people that have been reformed from that old life, they're exceptions to that rule. He's saying society as a whole, they're still like this. Are we better than them? No, all of sin. But we have the gift of Christ perfecting us, and that's the difference here. Mankind can be perfected, but only on the individual level and only through Jesus Christ. There is no other way to do that. That's the message Paul is giving. So finally, let's end this out with the constitutional rebuttal. How does the Constitution cut against this lie? Well, the main way that it does it is that it's the argument for why utopianism has never worked. Because if you believe the opposite of utopianism, you come up with something pretty close to the Constitution. And I, I know the first argument that you're going to run across is, well, it only hasn't worked because nobody's actually tried it. This is known as the no true Scotsman fallacy, that every single communist country has resulted in mass murder. Every single one that's tried it has, has done one of two things. You do have some countries that were going very hard in that direction, and then it just started to destroy their economy, so they backed off. That has happened. You know, you, you can reform before you get to that point. But you really only have two options. You can either back off of the communism, which places like the Scandinavian countries did, or you can go full throat into it and you wind up like Venezuela, or you end up like Russia, or you end up like China. There's really only two resolutions to that story, and you see them played out before your eyes. But they'll always say, well, that wasn't real communism. That wasn't real socialism. Well, that just becomes a, a, a spiral downward where they just don't believe because they believe that the system is good ergo any system that wasn't good must not have been the real system always ask them to actually substantiate their claim if they say that but here's the thing if you understand this lie it breaks down the illusion that socialism might work somehow because ultimately a corrupt thing cannot yield a perfect thing human beings are corrupt that's just the way that it is and because we are corrupt, we will never be able to actually realize a utopia here on Earth. Can't be done. We cannot, as corrupt beings, create a perfect system. Our founders tried really hard, but they knew it was not going to be perfect. Because they knew that they were not perfect, and that they could not create a perfect system. They knew that there was no such thing as utopia. Now, granted, they came darn close in a lot of ways. But they understood that there was no way to maintain a permanent utopia, and I don't think that they even thought that they could do one temporarily. And they were right in that, by the way. But ultimately, this is why all utopias eventually devolve into some kind of purging murders.
because at a certain point you meet somebody that's just not on board. You meet somebody that's not going to go away, go along with it. Somebody that in their mind is the corrupt one or the person corrupting the system and then they have to kill them. They can try nudging for a while. They can try shoving a while, but eventually they're going to get to shoot. Eventually, if you're a person that wants to instill traditional religious values into your children or tell your children that a man can't marry a man and a woman can't marry a woman or that a man can't be a woman, if that's what you're going to teach them, they can try to make you not do that, but eventually they're going to, to hit that point where they only have one option left, and that's to either separate you from society or kill you. Usually it winds up being a combination of the two, like concentration camps. But the point is, you're going to hit that wall eventually if you're somebody that believes in communism. And that's why it always ends that way. This is also why the Constitution is built in such a way that it accounts for man's flaws. Think about it. Why do we have checks and balances? Why is that something that our founders came up with that didn't really exist anywhere in the world before then? It's because they knew that human beings were flawed, and if you give any one of us too much power, no matter how good he is, he always winds up corrupt. Doesn't matter how good he is. You know, uh, even with our elaborate system of checks and balances, we've still seen all kinds of problems with corruption, even by having a separation of powers. Because any amount of power really can do that to somebody. Even King David, look at the kind of life that he led after he had been in power for a while. He thought he could get away with murder, and had it not been for God, would have. You can't give human beings a limited power because as good as we might try to be, we're corrupt individuals at our core. And so because of that, what wound up happening is they said, yeah, why don't we just spread the power around? And why don't we spread it around in such a way that each of the branches has a way to make the other branch not have too much power? Now, I won't go into the Schoolhouse Rock version of explaining how all those checks and balances work, but suffice it to say, they came up with a very clever system that specifically works against one another. In other words, and this is actually an argument that Alexander Hamilton makes in the Federalist Papers, he says that part of the reason the checks and balances work is because each branch is going to jealously guard its own power. That, in other words, the reason that the president isn't going to become too powerful is because Congress is going to say, we don't want him to have that power. We want that power for ourselves. And the reason that the president is not going to let the Supreme Court just do whatever the heck they want is because the president's going to be like, whoa, 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 they're doing my job now. I don't like that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do something that acts as a check on them to make sure that they don't get out of line. And so their idea was, yes, humans are corrupt, and we're going to use that very corruption as a weapon against them to make sure they do not exceed their own power because there will be another jealous, corrupt human being in another branch that's going to keep them from doing so. Not out of goodness, not out of altruism because they themselves are greedy and selfish. It's actually a brilliant and elaborate system. And it's the reason that it's lasted for as long as it has is because it recognized the flawed nature of mankind. Now, granted, I don't think the founders foresaw the ability to actually just kind of coast 
on your own political capital being forged out of just not having any accountability. That I don't think they foresaw. And as wise as they were, they couldn't see every possible outcome. What I mean by that is Congress has now abdicated much of its responsibility to the legislative or to the executive branch. And the reason they have done so is because they don't really pass it off to the president. They pass it off to a bureaucrat that works for the president. And so they pass a law like for the EPA, for example, that says just make clean air and water. And by the way, we'll just kind of let the EPA make their own standards and then make up their own way and their own regulations to enforce those standards. And then when somebody comes to you and asks, well, why are they tearing down this, or why are they not allowing us to build this bridge uh, at the EPA? And the congressperson, because he has plausible deniability, says, well, I didn't pass a law or I didn't pass a regulation that, that made the EPA do that. And in some sense, they're actually technically correct. It's just they abdicated their own legislative power to allow that bureaucracy to make decisions for them. But they don't pay a political cost for it specifically because they can say, well, I didn't make that decision. And so it keeps them out of trouble in the public's eye. This is not something the founders ever intended. And I didn't mean to go into a full constitutional argument here, but the point is the founders believed that people wouldn't voluntarily give up that power. They didn't count on that. And that's the reason that the system doesn't work as well as it was supposed to is because the separation of powers used to be something that kept us in check because people wanted to keep their own power with the office that they had. Now they're willing to give it away because they'll actually have more power and more status in the end by giving up all responsibility to somebody that can't be held accountable for it. And so in that way, they just kind of pick the bureaucrats that they want. They're able to get the exact same result that they want without having any accountability for it. And so unfortunately, our founders did not foresee that loophole, but that's really what we're dealing with now. But the point is, they put that system in place because they actually believed that humankind was flawed and was fallen. And putting that in place would use that very corruption against them in being able to obtain too much power. You know, our system of government really was based on the idea that even the best human beings on some level are evil and have a wrathful nature, just like Paul was talking about in Ephesians. And really, I think the best summary of this whole thing could be given by, I know this will come as no surprise, the great theologian C.S. Lewis. This is something that Lewis said in his uh, one of his essays that he wrote sometime between 1940 and 1945, so right in the middle of World War II. Now remember, the political parties are a little different there, so he's not when he says Democrat, he's not talking about like an American Democrat. He's saying a person that advocates for democracy. Even though I don't do that, this is Lewis's rationale for it. And here he says, I'm a Democrat because I believe in the fall of man. I think most people are Democrats for the opposite reason. A great deal of Democrat enthusiasm descends from the ideas that peop uh, the ideas of people like Rousseau, who believed in democracy because they thought mankind was so wise and good that everyone deserved a share in government. The danger of defending democracy on those grounds is that they're not true. I find that they're not true without looking further, without looking further than myself. I don't deserve a share in government, a hen roost, much less a nation. 
I don't deserve a share in governing a hen roost, much less a nation. The real reason for democracy is just the reverse. Mankind is so fallen that no man can be trusted with unchecked power over his fellows. Aristotle said that some people were only fit to be slaves. I do not contradict him, but I reject slavery because I see no men fit to be masters. That's really the whole thing in a nutshell. He's saying because mankind has fallen, none of them can be trusted to have power over another one. So he's saying, I believe in liberty and I believe in people not having too much power, not because I think that they're so wise and everybody needs a share in it. I actually think the opposite. That the only reason I think that you shouldn't have slavery is because there is no human that can be trusted with power over another human. It's the opposite reason that most people espouse ideas like democracy. Because ultimately Lewis understood that there is no paradise east of Eden because sin has infected mankind, and that is a genie that cannot be put back in that bottle. And there are some people who believe that society would be best if we had enlightened despots and if we just sacrificed our power to them or gave them whatever they wanted, then if we just got exactly the right people in place, then we would have the utopia that we've always dreamed about, but it's just simply not true. It's a foolish and childish dream. Anybody that understands human nature knows that this is stupid. It is not a way to run a system of government because humans cannot be trusted with unchecked power. And anytime you give them unchecked power, anytime you give a fellow human that kind of power and influence over your life, tyranny is always the inevitable result with no exceptions. That is why the biblical answer to this is to give that power to God. Instead of giving it to a corrupt human being, you give that authority, that reverence, and that subjection to a perfect being who then can make you perfect. That's the way you handle that. You can't have corrupt human beings creating a system that will also be corrupt and somehow get perfection with a bunch of corrupt human beings in a corrupt system. It just doesn't work that way. The only way to actually obtain it is to have a perfect being imparting perfection onto you. In other words, to put on Christ. That's the answer. Instead of giving all of your admonition and influence and subjecting your will to a person, you subject it to God. And when I say don't subject it to a person, I'm including you in that. Don't subject your will to yourself either. Ultimately, Trust God because his laws are higher than your laws and his ways are higher than your ways. And honestly, you could sum up most of the Bible narrative in saying it is a struggle for mankind to trust God and that his ways really are the best. Stay the course, friends. Thank you for listening to the Tactics Podcast. Tactics is a production of Not Ashamed Media. Any opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of our business partners or sponsors. Graphics by Jessica Dawson. Video production by Jackson Dean. Broadcast studio provided by Faulkner University. Location studio provided by Delreda Church of Christ. Copyright 2021.